Good morning. Uh, my name is Mark, if we haven't met. Um, please do keep your Bibles open at page 960, Malachi chapter 2. It's page 960 if you're using a church Bible. And um, also, uh, now's time to get your handout out if you were given one as you came in. There's still some at the back if you want to go and get one, if that's going to help you follow as we uh, move through the chapter together. <clears throat> Let's pray together. Father, um, thank you so much for this uh, time in your word together. Please help us by your spirit to understand and to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so up on the screen, um, there is half a heart. Half a heart, because last week, we thought about the half-heartedness of God's people at the time of Malachi. So they'd returned to Jerusalem after exile in Babylon. They were back in the land, back in their home, but they were being half-hearted in their commitment to God. And last week we saw the half-hearted nature of their sacrifices. They were offering God any old animal when God had clearly commanded uh, to offer the best to him. But this week, as we turn to chapter 2 in Malachi, we're going to see Malachi the prophet honing in on two more things that illustrate their half-hearted commitment to God. And the first thing is this. Number one, The half-hearted attitude of the priests. Have a look at chapter 2, verse 1. And now, you priests, this warning is for you. If you do not listen, and if you do not resolve to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them, because you have not resolved to honor me. So here we have a warning for the priests. We saw last week how uh, they were not honoring God because they were cooperating with the people in offering to God any old animal for sacrifice. You know, so this, you know, lamb, it's got foot and mouth. I don't want it. It's diseased. But God, you can have it. Dishonoring God. Dishonoring his name. Well, now God warns them that because of this, they are in danger. Danger of facing dishonor themselves in the form of God's judgment. Have a look at verse 3. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you will be carried off with it. What an image. Um, I once got hit in the face by seagull dung. It was at lunchtime at secondary school. I still haven't fully recovered. The shame, the public embarrassment. Well, God's warning is that he will smear on the faces of the priests the dung from their festival sacrifices. 
In other words, that's a lot of dung because at festival season, there's more sacrifices than usual being offered in the temple. That's a lot of dung. And it also meant that's a lot of people around who are going to see this public shaming because it's festival season. They're like town yesterday when everybody's out on the streets for the big Christmas festival. And notice at the end of verse 3, you will be carried off with it. In the end, the priests would end up being put outside the community in the place of uncleanness where all the dung is piled up. Talk about being humbled. And uh, the dishonor of being uh, removed from the community, but there's also the dishonor of having the hereditary priesthood taken away from them. I think that's what the rebuking of the descendants means at the start of verse 4. So it's uh, uh, the priests facing the possibility of God's judgment, but it's also, and this is really important, it's also their blessings. Have a look at verse 2. I will send a curse on you, and I will curse your blessings. Now the whole point of the priests and the sacrificial system is that it was designed to enable a holy God to live with sinful people so that people might enjoy God's blessing, the blessing of life with a holy God. Here's a familiar priestly blessing, and we'll pop it up on the screen. This is from the book of Numbers. I'm sure we've all heard this. Uh, The Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons, that's the priests, this is how you are to bless the Israelites. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. And they will put my name on the Israelites and I will bless them. Well, imagine if that blessing was cursed. Imagine if that blessing stopped working. Even worse, imagine if that blessing did the opposite. It's a solemn thought, isn't it? You see, when you have a half-hearted priesthood offering half-hearted sacrifices, it's not just the priests who are in danger, it's the whole community of God's people who are in danger. Well, very soberingly, end of verse 2, that curse has already started to take effect. Verse 2, yes, I have already cursed your blessings because you have not resolved to honor me. But we mustn't forget God's purpose in all of this. Have a look at verse 4. You will know that I have sent you this warning so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. The purpose of this warning is that it would produce repentance, that the priests would become wholehearted instead of being half-hearted, so that God's covenant with them, his special relationship with them and all of its blessings so that that might continue. So verses 1 to 4, they're a warning for the priests. And in verses 5 to 9, the Lord through Malachi provides a model for the priests to emulate. emulate. This is what they should be doing. Have a look at verse 5. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me 
and stood in awe of my name. With great privilege comes great responsibility. And um, the priests enjoyed a special covenant, a special arrangement, a special relationship with God that brought them blessing, life and peace, as verse 5 puts it. But it was a privilege that came with great responsibility. And in verses 5 to 7, there are four responsibilities that the priests had. And the first one was a right attitude. Have a look at verse 5 again. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. Uh, God, through Malachi, looks back to a time when instead of being half-hearted, the priesthood were whole-hearted. It's a right attitude described here, a right reverence and awe before God. Yes, there are other responsibilities that a priest has, but it all begins here. It starts with a right attitude towards God. The second responsibility was right teaching. Have a look at verse 6. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. You see, it follows, doesn't it, that uh, when a priest has a right attitude, a right reverence towards God, of course they're going to be deeply, deeply concerned to faithfully pass on what God says. Verse 7 says that the priest is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. That is a weighty responsibility, isn't it, to be the messenger of the Lord Almighty. The third responsibility is a right integrity. Have a look at verse 6. He walked with me in peace and uprightness. You see, right attitude, it doesn't just lead to the right kind of words. It also leads to the right kind of life. Lips and life are both in view here. Um, You think back to lockdown and, um, you know, some of those... Uh, in positions of power, sadly saying one thing, but apparently doing another, integrity is really important, isn't it? Right instruction was to be taught by the priests, but right instruction is also something that's caught, it's seen in the lives of the priests, in the way they live their lives. And then fourthly, Um, The fourth responsibility is right ministry. Have a look at the end of verse 6. Again, he walked with me in peace and uprightness and turned many from sin. Spot the kind of influence that a priest was supposed to have. It was about helping people with sin, turning people from sin. This is why a right attitude, right teaching, right integrity is why it's so important. Because verse 7, the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge because he's the messenger of the Lord Almighty and people seek instruction from his mouth. It's about helping others know how to live. That was their ministry. And again, it's a weighty responsibility, isn't it, to be responsible for the lives of other people. But sadly, look at what verse 8 says. You have turned from the way. That's not the right integrity. By your teaching, you've caused many to stumble. It's not the right teaching, not the right ministry. 
You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. And so, verse 9, the curses that we thought about a few moments ago, I have caused you to be despised and humiliated before all the people because you have not followed my ways but have shown partiality in matters of the law. So we've got a warning for the priests and a model for the priests that sadly they weren't living up to. But wonderfully, all of this points forward to a much, much better priest. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant, whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. The book of Malachi points forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus. And there's a fascinating episode in Mark chapter 11 when Jesus, the Lord, fully God and fully man, he curses a fig tree. Then he comes to the temple and cleanses it. And then he goes back to the fig tree, which has now withered and died. You see, with the coming of Jesus, God's judgment on the temple and its half-hearted priesthood, it reaches its fulfillment. But the wonderful thing is that in Jesus, God provides a new and much, much, much better priesthood for his people. In the book of Hebrews, we read this. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Jesus is the priest, a great high priest. Uh, Jesus is the priest with the right attitude. Listen to these words. Uh, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus is the one who reveres who is in awe of his Father. There is nothing half-hearted about Jesus' attitude. And Jesus is the high priest with the right teaching. Hebrews begins like this. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. Jesus is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. As John's gospel begins, Jesus is the word become Flesh who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Perfect, true instruction, nothing false, comes to us in the priest, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus is the high priest with the right integrity. In Hebrews, again, we read this. Such a high priest, that's Jesus, truly meets our need. One who is holy blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. In Jesus, lips and life match up 
perfectly, perfect teaching, perfect living. And Jesus is the high priest with the right ministry. Again, in Hebrews, we read this, For surely it is not the angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Jesus' ministry was to deal finally and fully and forever with the sin of God's people. And get this, how does Jesus do it? Well, in the book of Hebrews, we read that he suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Jesus was willing to face public shame, that shame of being put outside the community in the place where the dung's piled up, Jesus is willing to be taken into that place of dishonor, the only perfect priest who didn't deserve to go there, the only perfect person, dies on a cross to deal with sin, God's curse and God's judgment, because God requires a perfect sacrifice, only the best. And so that's what Jesus wholeheartedly offers to God, even to death on a cross. This is our priest, brothers and sisters. Perfect attitude, teaching, integrity, and ministry. So let's enjoy God's provision of the perfect priest for us. Let's enjoy listening to Jesus' flawless words As he speaks to us in the Bible, we can do that this morning together corporately as we hear uh, God's word read and preached. We're listening to the Lord Jesus. We can do it individually this week as we read God's word. Let's um, enjoy listening to his flawless words. Enjoy watching his life in the Gospels. Let's learn from his attitude and the way he lives. Uh, Let's also enjoy trusting his ministry, his sacrifice and all the blessings It secures for us. Remember those Old Testament priests? Their half-heartedness meant danger for the people. Well, Jesus' wholeheartedness secures safety for God's people. Blessings, life, peace, God's presence. Uh, Why not use Numbers chapter 6 maybe devotionally? We'll pop uh, pop it back up on the screen. Uh, Why not use uh, this passage devotionally this week, Um, that priestly blessing we read earlier. uh, Meditate on how Jesus mediates these blessings to you and to us together as God's people today. We're going to turn to verses 10 to 16 now and look at this section much more briefly. It's about the people's half-hearted attitude towards faithfulness faithfulness have a look at verse 10 do we not all have one father did not one God create us why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another 
Now, you'd expect God's uh, Old Testament people to be faithful and trustworthy in their dealings with one another because, as Malachi says, they all had one father. In other words, they're all part of the same family, and so you'd think they would stick by each other no matter what. But the people of Judah had a faithfulness problem. Have a look at verse 11. Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. You see, the problem was that the people of Judah, they were intermarrying with those who followed foreign gods. Now, God had said very clearly in his law that his people were not to do this. And uh, verse 10 is a reminder of why there's only one creator God. You see that in verse 10. So what are God's people doing? Well, it would have been very tempting. Marriage was a way of securing um, trade and land between families. It could help you get ahead in life if you had the right marriage arrangement. Um, you could imagine having returned from exile and with other people living in the land, you know, a marriage arrangement with one of the locals, even if they follow a foreign god, well, you know, the benefits could seem quite appealing. Well, it appears that this was creating a culture of unfaithfulness amongst God's people. Why stay married to Sheila if Vanessa might actually be a better option? And, you know, sure, Vanessa, you know, um, she uh, follows those kind of foreign gods. But you know what? I can live with that because um, it ticks some other boxes for me. And so verse 14 says, The Lord is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. And then verse 16 The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. The possibility of being with someone else who apparently brought more benefits was creating a culture of unfaithfulness within marriage and amongst God's people. Well, there's all sorts of problems with Judah's half-hearted attitude towards faithfulness. All sorts of problems, but there's at least two that are in these verses. First of all, uh, what about the next generation? That's the first problem with unfaithfulness. The next generation, look at verse 15. Has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. And what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Do you see God's concern here for the next generation, for godly offspring? How's the next generation going to learn what faithfulness is? Faithfulness to God, faithfulness in marriage, faithfulness in life generally amongst God's people and beyond. How are they going to learn faithfulness if they're set this kind of example by God's people? And so the message to married couples in verses 15 and 16, it's said twice, it's to be on your guard. Do not be unfaithful to the wife, or we might add the husband 
of your youth. So that's the first problem, the next generation. And the second problem was the people's worship. Have a look at verse 12. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You see, the corporate worship of God's people, when God's people get together and worship him together, it's supposed to be the overflow of a life lived seven days a week. But when there's persistent, kind of brazen, unrepented sin with a complete lack of shame, here it's the problem of unfaithfulness amongst God's people, it doesn't matter how fervent or emotional the corporate worship is, God does not accept it. It's really sobering, isn't it? And so we need to ask the question, don't we? How is our faithfulness as a community of God's people? It could be within our marriages, if we're married. Uh, We've thought loads about marriage recently in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. If you've just joined us as a church family, please do go back and listen to those talks online at the church website. Loads in there about faithfulness within marriage. But it could be faithfulness in other areas of our lives too. In our life together as a church, are we being faithful? We have one father. We're all one family. We want to stick by each other no matter what, don't we? But do our yeses mean yes? And do our noes mean no? The classic one is, you know, I'll pray for you, but then forgetting to pray. Or maybe the challenge is being uh, faithful with friends or colleagues. You know, yes, I'll do that. Or, you know, yeah, I'll be there. But do we still keep our word even when perhaps a better option comes along? Or if our faithfulness costs us in some way? Well, there are two motivations for us um, here in these verses. We've already looked at them. The first motivation, if we're struggling with faithfulness, is the next generation We have a wonderful, weighty responsibility and opportunity as a church family to teach the next generation what faithfulness looks like. They're being taught by Sarah Nurden in the room next door at the moment. Some of them are amongst us here. Um, Our job is to teach them what faithfulness is, what it looks like. Um, It might be young people in our family um, or our wider family but certainly the young people in our church family. Remember, true instruction, it's not just taught. Remember the priests? True instruction is also caught. It's going to be seen in the way that we live our lives. So next time we're tempted to break our word or be unfaithful in some way, think about the next generation. We want to help raise them to be faithful to God and uh, towards one another. And it starts with us. And the example that we set. And the second motivation here is worship, isn't it? Remember these words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them 
and then come and offer your gift. The fact is, sadly, we have all been unfaithful to others in one way or another, haven't we? But the important question is, are we brazen about it? Are we carrying on as if it doesn't really matter, unapologetically? Or are we repentant, seeking grace and reconciliation with others where necessary and where possible, and seeking grace from God. Uh, Malachi chapter 1 verse 9 puts it like this. Paul uh, reminded us of this verse in an email he sent out towards the beginning of this week. Malachi chapter 1 verse 9. Plead with God to be gracious to you. Well, God has been gracious to us, hasn't he? Through the Lord Jesus, the perfect, wholehearted high priest who offered the perfect wholehearted sacrifice who is the perfect wholehearted faithful bridegroom to his bride the church god has been gracious to us so let's come to him for his gracious forgiveness through the lord jesus and let's come to him for his grace to help us to change and to become more and more the faithful kind of people he wants us to be. Let's pray. Father, please give us humility before you as we worship you together this morning. Please show us if there's any unfaithfulness in our hearts and help us to repent. Please help us to keep a short account with you and a short account with others. And thank you for your grace towards us through our faithful high priest, the Lord Jesus. Please help us to become more like him in his faithfulness, we pray, and give us grace to help the next generation grow in faithfulness too. In Jesus' name. Amen. Mark, thank you so much.